Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> And welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Hi, Sid. Hi, Justin. We've had an interesting uh, week. Yes. Yes, we have. It's always an interesting week if your eyes are open and your heart is ready for the world around you. There's always something fascinating around every corner. But that's a good way to look at it. That is has been a bit of a hard sell this year, that, that sort of idea. I... Th- Sid, I think there's a, a beautiful mystery behind every chrysanthemum and uh, a, mm-hmm. a wonder and delight in the smile of every child. So I really oh, appreciate the okay. world around me. Well, that's good. Um, good for you. So for me, it was an exciting week Yeah. Uh, because we participated in a vaccine clinical trial. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we uh, led by... Uh, your mom. Uh, <laughs> By your mom. Well, my mom is not leading the trial. No, she, she she did not design, and and she's not responsible for the trial. But uh, so do we want to do we want to walk through our experience? Or I was kind of thinking I would start with the history of clinical trials before yeah, we get into good, this. I don't want to dive in too far. Let's get um, into history, and but, then we'll talk about how it went for us. Sure, because we we did we did tweet about it, and so I know a lot of people are asking. How did we find out? What was it like? What was your experience? And I want to talk about that whole thing. But um, there's, I think it's kind of in- interesting first to look back into like, how did we figure out how to do this? Because it's so, I think that the scientific method parts of it seem very logical now. Mm-hmm. Not all of it. It still needs explaining. But just the idea of like, let's test something to see if it works before we put it in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. It's one of those in hindsight things. Well, of course. Well, we'll obviously. That way, yeah. But how did we get there? Uh, and so I think it's interesting to look back. If you're looking at, at like what is regarded by a lot of people who write about these things as one of the first sort of clinical trials, so to speak. And this isn't anything like what we would call a clinical trial today. But a lot of people make references to a, a story from the Bible. Oh, Really? Yes. In the book of Daniel. Bastion of science. Uh-huh. Uh, in <laughs> in the book of Daniel, there's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar, who I remember from Veggie Tales. Yes. that I think that is a lot of people's touchdown for Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I, I believe he was played by a zucchini. Uh, yes. Well, that is actually factually, historically accurate. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was, of course, a zucchini. So he, I, I guess... 
liked his soldiers to only consume meat and wine. Mm. Thought to be the healthiest diet sort at of, the time. Sort of a proto Adkins. <laughs> and he uh, he had a group of soldiers who said, you know, we don't want to eat meat. The wine is fine. Wine we're okay with. But we don't want the meat. Uh, we would prefer lentils. And those are also, you know, that's a high density uh, carb. A lot of <laughs> nutrition packed into those legumes. Good stuff, lentils. And so this group of uh, vegetarian or p- perhaps vegan, I don't know. Maybe lentiltarian. That's all they're <laughs> Soldiers. all they like. Uh, stood up and said, we don't want to eat all this meat anymore. Um, maybe they realize like we don't feel so good when we got to do our soldiering after we've eaten a bunch of meat. Yeah. So we'd rather eat lentils. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, for 10 days, you guys eat the lentils with your wine and everybody else is going to eat the meat with their wine. And we're going to see who's healthier. And then you have a fight. Whoever <laughs> wins. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow it was judged that the lentil guys were healthier than the meat guys at the end of 10 days. 10 days I'm saying guys, that's not, to... I don't, I don't know the genders of these soldiers. I'm kind of assuming from the time period yeah. that they were probably, but either way. So the lentil people were healthier than the meat people. And I know right now all of our like vegetarian and vegan listeners are going, uh-huh, yes. But listen, nobody likes to know it all. So why don't you <laughs> stop talking to your phone and just listen to the podcast, okay? Uh, and and I guess that could be considered a trial of sorts, right? Yeah. You had two groups. Yeah. You changed one thing about the two groups. You had right. one variable. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like it was randomized necessarily. Well, you just had the people who wanted to eat lentils and the people who didn't. Yeah. So or that's maybe, not really maybe random. Maybe they did, but they gave them up for science. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know if they wanted to eat lentils. <laughs> but uh, in 1025 CE, Avicenna was really the one who kind of laid out, who sort of thought of as like the, the father of clinical trials, mm-hmm. the, the one who wrote down basic ideas that we still use today when we're designing a clinical trial so like um we need two different groups to compare if we're going to decide if something is working or not um we need to think about confounders which are confounders are other things that you can't control in an experiment that might affect the results yeah that might confound or or mess up the results uh, and lead you to believe something that isn't necessarily true Mm -hmm. um so you have to look out for those kinds of things when you're designing a study and uh and reproducibility this is something that i think we we often forget just because a study leads to some sort of conclusion doesn't mean like that's it we that we did it forever we're done you have to be able to like reproduce that result if you get one answer one time and then the opposite answer 30 times well, then you, maybe you were wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe the science is bad. Uh, there were also um, the uh, <laughs> the Babylonians uh, used to actually just have somebody who was like sick kind of stand in a public place and like have different people come up and offer advice. Okay. And like you could like I'm going to display my sick person, and then and different people can offer advice, and we can compare advices. Let- let like, the sick person know kind of where yeah. you're at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a way you could do it. Uh, we also had um, a, kind of an example of an experiment, so to speak, from Samuel Pepys, 
uh, who wrote about an experiment with a subject. Uh, a local college had hired what was described as a poor and debauched man to have some sheep blood let into his body. Mm, delightful. Um, as an experiment. So I guess those I mean, were sort I guess of it's an experiment. trials. Although if that counts as an experiment, I've done a lot of things in my life that you could count as an experiment. I, I really just... I wouldn't call myself <laughs> a scientist because I dumped a bunch of Spider-Man vitamins in my milk to see if it gave me superpowers. I like to mention Samuel Pepys because he's been misquoted widely on the internet these days. Mm. Everybody thinks that he said some really, uh, like, in in hindsight, some really intelligent things about the plague that were applicable to the coronavirus today. And when you see those memes circulating on Facebook and Twitter, those are actually not, he didn't really write that. Mm. It'd be really cool if he did. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. If he was saying like, I'm not going in the bars because you're going to get the plague there. And we were all like, see, see, Even see? We, we knew in the 1600s, but he didn't write that. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just thought that that was worth mentioning. Okay. Is True. there any, any other bubbles you'd like to burst before we move I'm on? Just or? saying. Okay. Um, we've talked about Pere a lot on this show um, because he did he did uh, he revolutionized a lot of when we think about like surgical care in like good ways and likewise he sort of inadvertently did one of the first early trials uh, in 1537 he was treating wounded soldiers and at the time the customary treatment would be to take boiling oil and just cauterize a wound. Oh, woof! I mean, it's still rough. Right, it it's is. And, but the problem was there were so many wounded soldiers, he knew he didn't have enough oil. There mm. was no way he was going to be able to, to, you know, cauterize all these wounds. So instead, once he ran out, he started applying a mixture of egg yolk, turpentine, and rose oil. Just a guess. I have to imagine just a wild guess. The, here's the weird thing. So the next day, he went to check on all of his patients. Mm-hmm. And the ones that got the mixture of egg yolk, tur- turpentine, and rose oil actually were doing better. Now, is that a tribute to the uh, efficacy of that blend? Or is it a tribute to just how bad it is to dump scorching hot oil onto wounds? <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's not that this is good. It's just the other one is so bad. But this actually, it was important because it, it changed his practice. And he talked about that. He wrote about that. Like, I saw it head to head. It wasn't better. Now, it probably led a lot of people to think that it was a rose good oil, turpentine, and, <laughs> and uh, egg yolk was a good mixture. But yeah. uh, we've talked a- at length about scurvy and James Lind. We did a whole episode on it. Um, so I don't want to rehash that whole experiment, but it, it's, uh, it has to be mentioned if we're going to talk about the history of like the development of clinical trials, because what James Lynn did with scurvy r- really is one of the earliest examples of like intended, like I am trying to do a study. This mm-hmm. is intentional. I am trying to set up di- like control groups and different variables. I'm trying to, to figure out what works best. And in 1747, he had he took 12 12 sailors who had scurvy divided them up into six groups of two and gave each of the six groups a different treatment so two soldiers per two sailors per group got either vinegar um this elixir that he that was like popular at the time some seawater some nutmeg some cider or oranges and lemons Mm -hmm. uh and then of course the citrus fruits that did it one out that did it you and i alayma know that and that immediately fixed scurvy 
No, it didn't. Actually, it was 50 years before um, <laughs> that that recommendation would be adopted and sailors would be issued lemon juice and then later lime juice because it was cheaper. Because mm. um, it was really delicious. expensive. That's why. Did you know that? Really? It was just, it was just cost prohibitive. James Lynn figured it out, and the the so British Navy was like, "What do you like, want? A bunch of lemons? We don't. What yeah. are we made of lemons? <laughs> That's basically what they said. Like, we don't have. We can't. What? Do you, there's no point. Like, like we can't eight, do this. There's like eight lemons <laughs> right now. Because look at the calendar right now. There's like eight lemons. Because of this, May twentieth is International Clinical Trials Day. I didn't know that because of this. Uh, I, what I enjoyed is that as I was preparing this episode, I was um, reading about James Lynn's trial and Charlie came and asked me what I was reading about and I explained it to her. And her reply was, can we act that out with our toys? So you recreated this with who? I guess Peppa Pig families? Mm -hmm. Peppa Pig was in there. Minnie Mouse was in there. SpongeBob, uh, Squidward, two dinosaur toys that I think we got from a fast food restaurant. Okay. Um, all the, all of her favorite characters were in the gr the group that got oranges and lemons. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you want <laughs> that. And then the ones she didn't like as much didn't get the good. R.I.P. Generic dinosaurs. Sorry, you couldn't. Yep. You got you got, got scurvy. Uh, Josh from Blue's Clues was James Lind in this. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. He was it was solving a mystery. He was piecing together the puzzle. I love it. Yeah, it was Works. a weird thing for her to want to act out, but I I'm not gonna lie, I was proud. Yeah. Uh, so, um, in the late 1700, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, the next big thing that was like a step forward for the idea of a, a trial of a, you know, regimented way of testing a therapeutic was placebo. Mm -hmm. Placebo was originally something that you would give a patient, not necessarily to make them better, but just to make them happy. <laughs> That's nice. About it. Yeah. Um, initially, these weren't necessarily inert. You know, a lot of the times we think about a placebo now as like a sugar pill, right? right Something right. that has absolutely zero effect. Uh, back then, a lot of the times, a placebo would be some sort of like maybe herbal or folk remedy that doctors didn't really think worked, but they knew patients liked and it pleased them. And so they would just say, well, just use that. That's fine. Well, in those days, like if a pill didn't give you diarrhea, you knew that it was not real. Like this can't be medicine. It didn't get me high or give me diarrhea. Which makes sense because eventually when that would be replaced with like sugar pills and bread pills and things like that. Um, Tell me about bread pills. I mean, I'm assuming they're just pills made out of bread. That's so cool. Tiny little pills made our bread but uh once the once they were replaced with those kinds of things um then you would know it wasn't doing anything or at least you would know it didn't have any very clearly demonstrable effects on yeah. your body yeah um the way that some of those early patent medicines probably did Absolutely. even though they weren't necessarily treating or curing anything uh but these again these weren't necessarily for trials at first these were more just for patient satisfaction um, in 1863, a Dr. Austin Flint uh, kind of did a study using one of these herbal treatments as a placebo for rheumatism and then used an established like what he believed to be the real treatment uh, in hospitalized patient and patients. And this was the first time when people went, "Ooh, hey, well, we could we could do this in studies like that's where this placebo stuff. That's mm. where this business could be really helpful other than just like patient satisfaction scores. <laughs> We could do it 
to learn something. Was the idea with placebos not using like fake placebos? Was it the idea of like, well, we'd like to do, we want to do something for them, mm-hmm. even if it's not the medicine. Like it's it it was less scientific and more. Well, I guess it's still scientific, but it's like, well, we want to help them in some way, maybe. Before they were used in trials, placebos were very much, um, it was not a bad thing for a doctor to be giving you something that they didn't know would work because our idea of what we knew would work was so different. I mean, what you're really talking about is this idea that if the patient seems pleased with the treatment they've received, you've done a good job, which is very- (laughs) Customer-focused medical care. Well, and that's a very different goal than I- I, I want something that I know works for the condition that this patient has. Mm-hmm. That, that, and so if you gave somebody a placebo and then they, you know, a week later told you that they felt great and they told other friends about it and they're feeling and they're back to work or whatever, then good. Yeah. And then you did it, you know. So it wasn't so necessarily tied to like, d- is it real? Mm-hmm. Um, is it real though, honey? Is it real? I don't know. I mean, if... If you're patient, is it real? Yeah. The, the mind-body link. <laughs> you and I don't see eye to eye on this, but. No. Well, I'm an empiricist. This is, this is, this is the conversation. I believe that the mind has incredible power to heal the body. So if your mind believes something is real, then, mm-hmm. then you still are getting a practical benefit. It's just a different, it's a difference of opinion. I think that, okay, before we uh, delve into this, um, sort of philosophical argument any further? Why don't we uh, head to the billing department? Let's go. The medicines, the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although. There will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan um but they got like fancy stuff listen to this where are you gonna get this truffle butter filet mignon i mean seriously from 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 a, a box pre-prepared all i got at two minutes i mean filet mignon that sounds delicious yeah it sounds delicious and you can give these a try and it's not just these meals we're talking pancakes smoothies they got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious and the meals you just eat and eat there's no prepping cooking or clean up. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, f- and th- the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier 
than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going to. Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool. Think of it as the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So what we really think of... Wait, you didn't want to delve any more into the the philosophical discussion of the mind-body link? No, I was trying to distract you with ads. <laughs> and it worked. You're always distracted by ads. Fair enough. It's true. So in the, uh, in the 1900s is really when we see like the... At the same time that governments were figuring out how to regulate medicines and drugs and all that kind of stuff, we were figuring out how to test them more rigorously, right? Right. So, uh, not much sense in regulating them if you can't actually tell yeah, if they're I mean, working or not. Well, and I mean, initially there were just like councils set up by like the American Medical Association where like a bunch of experts just went, we think this works, but that doesn't. So, anyway. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Um, We're but going in, to lunch. <laughs> in 1943, the Medical Research Council of the UK did an actual double-blind, randomized controlled trial with a drug called Patulin that was used for colds. And they enrolled over a thousand British people in it. They gave them either placebo or Patulin. It it didn't show that the drug worked, but it was a really good design. <laughs> I'm sure um, that was cold comfort to Patulin. And in 1947, that was built upon with streptomycin. So there was a, a huge study that was designed in 1947 to see if streptomycin would be a useful medication for tuberculosis. Um, and what's really interesting about this trial is that at in this one, so the way they used to randomize patients, like if we're going to test streptomycin then you would just give it to every other patient mm -hmm. like if you come in you get streptomycin the next person who comes through the door doesn't the next person who comes to the door does and so on and so forth the what it, can you can you foresee what the problem with that is like why would that not work why is that not an okay way to randomize patients uh i don't know so Let's say that the next, first of all, imagine doing that in a small town like ours. Mm -hmm. What are the chances that I'm going to know one of the people who walks through the door? Very good. And what if they walk through the door and they're a friend of mine? And you want to give them the good stuff. And I want to give them the good stuff because I really think it works. Or flip side, <laughs> you don't want this stuff. It's basically rat poison that we put orange flavor into. Do not. You cannot. I'm going to give you the fake stuff. So there's part of it. The yeah. other, The other part of it is... Like, you might be tempted to, if somebody came in who was really, really sick and you thought, well, it's kind of too late, no matter how much I believe in this, I, I don't think that this is going to work. Um, 
maybe you don't want to include them on your story. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that this all was kinds happening. There's human, but dumb the, human yes. stuff. I mean, maybe you're like a huge racist. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it could be anything. It, there's so many ways that this could go wrong. So the idea was that can we really, um, let's randomize people in a way that we're even the person who's bringing them back, putting them to bed and giving them medicine doesn't know who's who. Take the control, and that's the the whole idea of, like, a double-blind trial, right? So, like, the doctors don't know who's getting the real thing. The nurses don't know who's getting the real thing. And the patients, the subjects, don't know who's getting the real thing. Triple-blind. Yeah, well. Well, no. No, it's still, it's doctors still, like. Doctors and nurses count as one They're, they're one okay, group, yes. Uh, and so, this was, this was a big revolution. Now, we can do studies where we can really get good data um, this study was like inspiring to many. We can we can get good data back um, to show us, you know, exactly what works and what doesn't. It, by the way, did show that streptomycin was helpful. Oh, good. Yeah. See, a win, a win for science. You know, it's interesting. They're both you, a win for science. Now, I will say, do you know what the alternative was at the time? Mm, nope. Bed rest. <laughs> okay. Well, so. <laughs> you can do that too if you want. <laughs> so, and, and and I should say. Um, a Bradford Hill, Austin Bradford Hill, was the one who designed the study. He was a statistician, and he was famous for this. He is, he is known as one of the early, you know, like, scientists, statisticians who really got this stuff and was able to, like, put it all together. Congratulations to him. Um, and uh, throughout the 1900s, you start to see, like, the protocols. Okay, so now we know how to do it, but, like, how should we regulate this stuff you can kind of imagine what sort of events drove tighter controls. Um, first, uh, after World War II and the Holocaust, sure, uh, there were a lot more regulations put in place as to, like, you have to tell people they're in trials and they <laughs> have to agree to be in them. Yeah. And you can't just... You have to let them out if they don't want to be in the trial. And also, there are you can't just experiment with anything on anybody for any reason. Like you have to have reasons. Why do you think this works for this and that kind of thing? Right. Um, we don't, you know, because otherwise you just harm people, right? Uh, Tuskegee is another good example of, course, yeah. of after that came to light that that is it's unethical to have a treatment for something and not give it to people just so you can observe. The natural history of a disease. Yes, that is. And so uh, things like that evolved into the concept of informed consent. Um, Do you know that? I I use that term because I use it all the time. Do you know what that means, informed consent? I mean, I got the idea, but maybe. That that is a, for a layperson, it makes sense. In the medical world, that concept of informed consent is incredibly important. And I think it... It is more than just its words. Obviously, before I do a procedure or give you a medicine or whatever, you give me consent. I ask, do you want it or not? And you say yes or no. The informed part is hugely powerful because I have to inform, I have to make sure that I feel confident that you understood why I think it's a good idea for you, why someone else might not think it's a good idea. What are the risks? The what are the benefits? Okay it, but also, you know that I know exactly what that means. What my what my acquiescence means. And that's it. Can sound very simplistic, but it really is. I mean, you can t- you can spend if you're if you're good at your job. This will take you a long time. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes really easy, right? You have strep throat. Here's the antibiotic for it. 
if you don't take it, here's what happens. If you do take it, you'll get better. (laughs) You know, it's sometimes it's really straightforward, but informed consent sometimes is not that straightforward and takes a lot more time to really make sure that you and the patient are on the same page. So that concept took a long time to Mm -hmm. evolve alongside um, the idea of it. Uh, In the U.S., as I mentioned, initially evidence-based medicine was guided by like the American Medical Association, the AMA and the FDA. Um, they kind of moved from like, at first, how would you decide if a medicine worked? Well, a doctor just said it did to like these pooled observational kind of studies where like, let's get different doctors from all over and all of their opinions and come up with a consensus. Mm-hmm. And an expert consensus opinion is still used yeah, yeah. to guide practice to this day in areas where we have a an absence of data um but that was replaced especially with the use of the fda by like actual rigorous studies and trials um this was driven forward by a couple incidents in 1938 there was an antibiotic uh sulfonilamide that was released mm-hmm. which was good and did work it ex- sounds bad well, it's the a sul- is, it's one of the early sulfa drugs. The, the name I'm saying it just sounds bad. It sounds disconcerting. <laughs> the drug is not bad. The problem is that it was uh, when it was prepared, it was put in a solvent of diethylene glycol, which you probably know by the name antifreeze. Oh no! Yes, that's and so sol- that's not solving anything. Exactly, a hundred people died because oh. they were given an antibiotic that would have worked had it not been. For the antifreeze. Mixed with antifreeze. Jeez, oh, Pete. Uh, and there were a ton of new regulations That's put bullish. in place after that incident um, because they didn't test the final compound. They tested the sulfonilamide, but they didn't test the final thing they were about to put in human bodies, right? Yikes, yeah. So, so that changed things. Um, and then thalidomide in 1961 would lead to a lot more oversight and regulation. I won't belabor that because I think that's a whole episode yeah. in and of itself. Um, and... Over time, the other big the other big change that has been made slowly is initially when you would do these studies, uh, you might focus on like, well, one there was an idea of you needed a population that could handle it, and two, who you had access to and that kind of thing. And so right. there are you know there were definitely and we've talked about on the show times when um, populations who did not have control over you know, like a a population that was imprisoned Mm -hmm. would be used for these trials. But also sometimes it would just be, you would do a whole trial of young, healthy, cis, straight white men. Yeah. And like eventually they had to say, well, I mean, maybe these trials should not only have men in them. And maybe we also need to check on the elderly because they can respond to things differently. And maybe also kids, we need to know what works for them and what doesn't work for them because they're, you know, their bodies can react differently. And, beyond ethnicity there were a lot of things that had to change um to get truly diverse sample populations to check a drug in to see does it really work or not which isn't just about inclusivity it's safer for everybody yeah it's safer for everybody and it and it makes sure that the the pill that i'm recommending to you would work for you and not just for a group of people who are completely unlike you Mm -hmm. you know um that helps us for a lot of reasons so I want to talk a little bit about our experience now. Yes. Because we, so how did we find out about it first? Uh, that's, a, your, that's one your, big question. Your, uh, so your mom mentioned it to us, but I actually, you know, it's not hard. You can Google like um, 
COVID-19 trials in your area. Vaccine trials. Vaccine trials in your area. And if one's going on, you know, or, or I think there are some services that like match you mm-hmm. with a trial in your region. I, I kind of thought it would be like jury duty where they'd have to like call you if they wanted to. But no, you just apply to do it. Yeah, it was it was actually really easy. So my mom was very proactively looking for one. Yeah. And found this one um, and immediately enrolled both her and my dad. And then after asking our permission, enrolled, <laughs> she enrolled us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, enrolled both of us and my sister Riley uh, as well. And then also passed that information on to like 30 other people yeah. in our area. Which I've been doing the same thing. Like, hey, this I've been surprised at how many people have been like, ah, I'm just going to wait until it's done before I uh, participate in any sort of uh, trials. So I. I want to tackle that right away because I think that bleeds into the next point I wanted to make, which is people have asked why, why did we get involved mm, okay. um, in this trial? Two, twofold uh, for me personally. Mm-hmm. One is, you know, there's a decent chance that we're going to, I mean, there's a decent chance we'll get the vaccine. Also a decent chance we'll get the placebo. Uh, it is a better chance that it, the, this study design, which by the way was the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine is the one that we have either gotten or gotten placebo of yeah the first dose at this point yeah there are two doses uh 28 days apart we have received the first one and um it isn't if you're interested you can read about it it's supposed to be an adenovirus vector vaccine they use this harmless well, non-replicating like virus to deliver techno babble the, i mean anyway so I, I i like the idea of one i like the idea that whether or not i get the vaccine i'm i'm helping the you know we're kind of putting our money where our mouth is or our bodies where our mouths are which is part of our bodies now that i think you know what i mean uh we talked about vaccines a lot on this show and i like the idea of being able to help a little bit with a vaccine that's cool it makes you feel good uh also be chill to have be vaccinated against covid sydney is a a healthcare worker, um, and you know, my I'm less worried about myself. And you live with me, that's uh, why I you're worried. Live, <laughs> I do live with Sydney, uh, so yeah, I don't. And and you know, her parents are uh, my uh, dad and, and stepmom are you know, uh, in their twilight years, you know. Well, I wouldn't say that about <laughs> them, they I, might listen, not like that. <laughs> I would say that to my dad's face, but the point is, we want to try to protect them too, so I don't know. That's what we. I, those are, I mean, those are pretty much my reasons. That's what I would say. I would couple to that. Um, first of all, I was not worried because even though a lot of people have used the word rushed in regard to these vaccines, mm-hmm. I do not, I do not see them as rushed because the thing that usually hangs up vaccine or drug development is not that it takes that much time. It's not, I mean, it's not that it, you need necessarily more hours in a lab to figure out how to do these things or to make sure that they work or to make sure that they're safe. It's not really that. It's usually an issue of funding mm. um, and also competition. So if you're going to put a ton of money into a new vaccine or therapeutic, uh, you are going to want to make sure that the thing you come out with you're going to be able to make money off of, make that money back. And then let's be honest, make a profit. profit. Yeah. Yes. And so all, a lot of that time is in making sure before you throw more money into it, taking it very slow. Um, sometimes it's getting the funding for it. And then mm-hmm. sometimes a lot of drugs will make it to phase two 
and people will just decide not to go any further because other drugs are out competing them already, you know, and might make it to, mar make it to market first and get the big share of the money and so on and so forth. So for all those reasons, that's why it usually takes so much longer. Those barriers weren't in place this time. Mm -hmm. They have the, these uh, vaccine companies have had tons of access to funding to drive this as fast as it can go. Um, this Maybe is at warp speed. Sydney. <laughs> I would not use that word. This is how fast drugs can be made when all of our scientific and societal will is pushing in the in the uh, the same direction. This is the same energy that got human beings up on the moon. <laughs> this is this is what we can accomplish when we all have a common goal. The thing is that's not always the case. We're getting bogged down. Let's just talk about our experience because I think that there is going to be at least one episode just talking about why getting the vaccine is a great idea. So why okay. don't we talk about our personal experience? So when we First of all, we went to the center, which is about 45 minutes from where we live. Um, it was in a doctor's office. I think a lot of doctors can apply to have these trials at their facility. And so this was in like an outpatient mm -hmm. office. Uh, we went to the waiting room, which was nicely laid out and socially distanced with like Appreciate chairs that. and signs. Uh, signed in. We had to fill out. Um, a We had to read a very extensive um, informed consent form. Which was actually very well written. It was very um, plain, written, plainly written. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of like you would expect more legalese, and it wasn't really that. It was more sort of a clear, understandable. Here's what you're getting into when you sign up for this. So it, it felt le less like the, um, you know, the stuff you click through when you're trying to install something uh, on yes. your phone. You know, it, it was not that. It was, I thought it was very well done and it asked the questions exactly, why would I do this? Why would I not do this? What are the risks to it? What are the risks of, I mean, of, of the procedures that are around it? Because like they do have to draw your blood first. Um, they do store your blood somewhere. All those different things were very explicitly explained and you had to check that you understood every single page before you could move on. It even had a thing on. where if you hit uh to go to the next one too quickly, it'd be like, you didn't really take your time with that. Do you want to take another look and see? It recorded how long you spent on each page. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so once you read all of that, if you were in agreement, you signed it, you turned all that in. And then uh, we were called back first for basically an HMP, a history and physical. So a doctor came in and asked a ton of questions about my health history, my current symptoms, mm -hmm. um, wanted to establish that I was at risk for getting coronavirus. Yeah. Um, what, what were my risk factors for actually, you know, getting the disease, which as a healthcare worker, that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. um, but because if you never leave the house and you'll never be exposed, we won't know if the vaccine really worked or if you just never encountered it. Yeah, you know? right. Which is always a possibility, but you want at least some risk, risk you right. know for your subjects um they had me take a pregnancy test to ensure that i was not pregnant anyone of childbearing age was expected to do so mm -hmm. and uh then they drew blood not 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 the most pleasant but it was fine it was fine i fine it did not bother me i didn't look and i was a big tough guy uh, part of it was for like a genetic study that they were doing in conjunction with this. And then I believe part of it is to check for antibodies, mm -hmm. um, ahead of time. Um, but they don't look, they don't like condition what you get on that cause they can't get the results that fast. It's right. all in one visit. And then, uh, once they had done all that, 
Um, oh, and a very brief physical exam. Yeah, and, not much of anything to write them about. Yes, very, very minimal. Uh, and after that, um, they came in and I rolled up my sleeve and they administered something. Something. Either a saline injection or the vaccine itself. So let's talk about the, the reactions that we've had in our, in our uh, cloister of so, people. So immediately I had uh, a little bit of redness and a little bit of swelling and warmth at the injection site. Nothing painful. I didn't feel anything, um, but you could see it mm-hmm. on examination. Uh, you, I don't, I think I was the only one who had an injection site reaction on that first day. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. I felt no, fine. Yeah. yeah. No. The next day I had some, uh, some swelling and some soreness at the injection site. Uh, as did Riley and a little bit of a red circle at the injection site. Um, my arm was sore the following day. Again, about what I would expect with other vaccines I've received, mm-hmm. things like the flu shot or a Tdap or something like that. Um, I w- had some symptoms. Mm-hmm. I did have a headache. I had some body aches. Um, and I, I never had a fever that I recorded, but mm-hmm. I felt like some subjective like chills and sweats and that kind of thing. Your mom had a similar reaction. My mom had a similar reaction. Riley had a similar reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's genetic. Who knows? I don't know. I don't no. know. You you did not. You just felt a little tired. A little run down. Not too no. bad. Of course, I that could be, honestly, I, it's the worst symptom, uh, symptom to try to distinguish between uh, psychosomatic and not because it could very well have just been that it, I was just tired. <laughs> like that of, is entirely possible. A little bit of nausea, too. We all had a little bit of nausea. Um, my dad felt nothing. Yeah. Nothing. Not, not a single... Of any of the things I've mentioned, did my dad feel? Um, now, as to who got it and who don't, who didn't, we don't know. Yeah, okay. Uh, the what we do is we go back in 28 days. We get our second, whatever, <laughs> placebo or vaccine, and then my understanding is after at least two weeks after that, there is some period of time after that we will be made aware. Yeah. Of what we got, um, and at that point, the the other thing that they did say, and also they will be drawing antibodies periodically as we move forward to look to see if we're creating antibodies. Um, we're, we're also going to have to keep going for the next uh, two years or so. Yes. They're going to keep checking up on us and, and we're going to continue to be participating in this study. So it's not just a quick and easy way to get a, <laughs> get a vaccine. <laughs> it's going to be frequent drives up to Charleston for quite some time. Uh, it's not that frequent. It's not that bad. And we may have gotten the vaccine, so it's worth it. And yeah. we're furthering science. That's um, the real exciting part. That's it. That's the bit. That's a big thing. Uh, of course, they'll be looking to see if any of us get coronavirus. We're supposed to report immediately mm-hmm. if we have any symptoms, um, so that they can find out. You know, uh, and they also, in addition to continuing to measure our um, antibodies, um, they they are following up on like symptoms and side effects and that kind of thing. That's the mm-hmm. other thing they are checking for. So they'll be calling us, you know, a week from when we got it. So in a few days to find out how we're doing. Yeah. There's been like, uh, I've gotten some email. I don't know if you've been getting Mm -hmm. emails about like asking me to log my symptoms. Yeah. There's like an app to, to check things on. Uh, And I should mention all the symptoms we had were gone within like two days. Yeah. Um, I would, I would call them mild and I would say that I would do it again. If that means I got the real deal, I would happily go, go for it again. It was no worse than what I've ever seen from any other common vaccine. Um, 
one thing that I think is important to know, they made it clear that if at any point a vaccine became available to us, was approved and available other than this vaccine, then they would uh, tell us which one we got to allow us the possibility to get that vaccine. So we are in the AstraZeneca trial. If at some point we had the opportunity to get the Moderna vaccine. Or the Pfizer vaccine. Or the Pfizer vaccine. We could ask the people of our trial, like, hey, do we have the real thing? Because if not, you know, I'm going to go get at this. Yes. And okay. ethically, they have to tell us at that point. They've made that very Which I'm clear. assuming would bump you out of the trial, right? Like you it would. Part yeah. Of the study anymore. yeah. You'd be removed from the study. Um, and that you can leave the study at any point. They, they make that very clear. Um, and I just want to... I. I one quick note. One, a lot of people ask, why are there placebos in vaccine trials? Do you remember, Justin? Well, it's so because you have to compare how many of those people who got the placebo also got COVID. So you know how effective your uh, vaccine is. Right. Because you accept that most vaccines aren't 100%. So somebody's going to get COVID. And if right. you didn't have a control group, you know, what what do you right. compare that, that those numbers to? Right. Um uh, the other thing is, I do want to make a note, a lot of times when we talk about the hesitancy of trying a new drug or therapeutic or vaccine, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people point this this out that's v- a very valid concern. Uh, populations in this country that are marginalized or have been abused or taken advantage of in our society have been unfairly targeted for these types of things in the past. And there is still a lot of hesitancy when it comes to trying an unproven, you know, drug or vaccine or whatever among maybe members of the black community or people of color and uh, indigenous people. And I think all of that is understandable and valid and deserves the time and attention to how do we overcome that together how do we work together to make sure that people feel very comfortable that the thing they're receiving is not we're not using it experimentally on you because right. you're in a marginalized population right. I, I always want to give voice to that because sometimes we're so easy to dismiss like why would you be worried why would you be concerned and sense. we've talked about things like tuskegee on this show before well, why do you think people would be concerned? Yeah, there's not a great track record there. Yeah, especially when it comes to the United States government and especially with the current administration. I can understand why people have hesitancies or fears, but I am going to tell you that Donald Trump has nothing to do with the production of any of these vaccines. He's no not in the lab. He in the coming weeks. <laughs> He's not working with test tubes or beakers or pipettes or Petri dishes. He wouldn't know how. Um, the scientists who are making these vaccines know what they're doing. The science is solid. The numbers are good. I'm not worried about the stuff I've seen so far about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, it didn't give me pause. Put it right in our veins, baby. It The fact that it is shelf stable or the fact that it is uh, refrigerated and as opposed to having to be kept in a deep freeze will be a big plus for like rural communities like ours for mm-hmm. sure. And other parts of the world where a deep freeze vaccine would be very difficult logistically. Um, all these vaccines are needed. And let me just say, I would have gotten any of them. Yeah, sure. Whatever trial I could have enrolled in, I would have. I'm not going to enroll in multiple. That would be bad. Mm-hmm. Except <laughs> so. for the Mountain Dew one. I'm not even sure that's a vaccine at this point. Um, I mean, it's made by Mountain Dew. What do they know about vaccines? I don't think they're making a vaccine. Anymore. I assumed they would be. Uh-huh. But actually, I might misread that headline now that I think about it. Vax- the Mountain Dew COVID red. So. <laughs> 
No, but um, I would, if it is something you're interested in, look in your area. There yeah. might be a trial near you. Um, Maybe a little late at this point, but hey, go for it. They're yes. still, they're still doing phase three Sundays, trials. And there are other vaccines coming. These ones we've mentioned are the ones that they've talked about because they're furthest along. There are other vaccines still being trialed and they're working on. It's going to take a lot of vaccines to protect everybody. And yeah. it's going to take a lot of time to convince everybody that we need these vaccines. You should get them. They are safe. They are effective. And, and not to be a, um, you know, all doom and gloom, but it is not easy to tell when you will be able to easily get a, a vaccine of your own. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, might, if you if you are open to this, it might be worth exploring. Mm-hmm. And you're doing your part for science. That's if you right. can do it, if you feel comfortable, and if you are um, a, of a health that you can do so, this would uh, this may be a good thing for you. Thank you so much for listening to our program. Uh, we hope you've learned a little something. Hope you enjoy yourself. Uh, I want to ask you right now, if you would be so kind. Uh, head on over to bit.ly forward slash Sawbones paperback. That's right. The Sawbones book is back and it is in beautiful paper. I mean, it's it's always been paper, but this is really great paper. December 29th, uh, this, this new edition will be released. And yes, it has uh, new content. We did some stuff about quarantines and, and the like. Relevant uh, to today's relevant world. Relevant to today. New illustrations by... Uh, Sydney sibling Taylor Smurl and uh, it's just it's great and I really it would mean a lot to us if you would be so kind as to go pre-order that bit.ly forward slash um, Sawbones paperback and you know it'll be out December 29th so maybe you leave a little picture under the tree it's like I got you this book it'll be here soon it's a beautiful gift um, and you know New Year's is just around the corner so what better way to start anyway you get the idea bit.ly forward slash Sawbones book uh, sorry, Sawbones Paperback. Thank you so much to the taxpayers for the use of their song Medicines as the intro and outro of our program. And uh, thanks to you, Sid. For, Thank you. For uh, for listening. That is going to do it for us for this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported. Hey friends, Jesse here, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have some really great news to share with you. This year has brought a lot of changes for all of us. And one tradition that we were grateful to be able to hold on to is our annual pin sale to benefit charity. This year, through your generosity and love of pins, you helped raise $95,400 for Give Directly. If you're a member and you bought pins, they'll ship in January. In the meantime, your support will provide direct cash relief to families impacted by COVID-19 across the United States. Even in this incredibly tough year, the Max Fund community remains extraordinarily kind. And whether or not you bought pins, you can continue to help by heading to givedirectly.org. And as always, thank you.